You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis 13. We'll be reading the chapter in its entirety this morning. Genesis 13, verses 1 through 18. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward, and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to Lord. Father, we look to you this morning that, Lord, you would teach us from your word, that, Lord, you would speak to us from your word. Father, you would open our hearts and our minds to hear your voice, to understand uh, this passage, and to be able to apply it to our lives for your glory. Father, we ask that you would transform us through your word that, Father, you would fashion us and make us more like your Son, Christ Jesus, for your glory in his name. Amen and amen. There is um, nothing easy about the pilgrimage that we're on, is there? I mean, right now, some of us might be going through a relatively easy time, but it's just a matter of time before that changes. Some of us are not going through such an easy time uh, right now. 
There's really nothing easy about it. There's nothing easy about following the Lord through this dark world to what John Bunyan referred to as the celestial city. If anyone's ever read The Pilgrim's Progress, if you've never read it, I, I recommend that book to you. Um, the celestial city. It can be a dark and, and really dangerous journey on the way to the celestial city. But that having been said, there's something really wonderful that I want to share this morning concerning this dark work, and it's nothing other than the very work of God Himself, which we see in this passage. Um, what we see here, and what I hope to develop, uh, is work that God doesn't delegate to someone else. It's work that He does Himself. It's work that He does with His very own hands. And it's work that He does reaching down to His weary children and strengthening them. And bringing them through these trials and it is beautiful and what do I mean by all this well we're not going to be able to cover it this morning it was it was um, early yesterday morning when I realized okay we're not going to get through all of this on Sunday it wouldn't be wise to try and that's okay because Lord willing we'll have next Sunday to pick this up really in many ways as part two of uh, what I want to begin sharing this morning uh, so, Lord willing, that's the plan. But for this morning, I would like to begin really by going verse by verse through the text at the start so that we could become familiar with this text. And uh, then we'll be able to begin making this application to ourselves. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start with verse 1, if you look there with me. There we find out that Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had. And, of course, we... We, we know that already. Uh, we, we know that when we read verse 20 of chapter 12, because there um, Pharaoh is basically throwing Abram and his company out of him. So we ask ourselves, why is, why is uh, Moses repeating this? It's for review. It's for review. And uh, with this uh, sentence here, what Moses is really leading us back to recall what had taken place in Egypt. And uh, we can think about earlier in chapter 12, Abram, he's called to leave, really, and forsake everything, isn't he? I mean, think of the list. He leaves his country, he leaves his kindred, and he leaves his father's house. Pretty much all. Now, he does leave with a number of servants. He leaves with uh, a number of possessions at this point. God hasn't called him to forsake all of that. But in terms of his family, in terms of his kindred, the country that he's familiar with, Aaron leaves it, doesn't he? He leaves it. And in his display of great faith, I mean, Abram departs from Haran to an unknown destination, and we have drawn from that uh, a list of marks that, that I've been making a lot of noise about. What does saving faith look like? We have such an illustration of it right here. And I don't want to belabor it, but um, we see that saving faith, saving faith is willing to forsake everything for the Lord. Saving faith is a certain pedigree of faith that really holds on loosely to the things of this world and is ready and prepared to give them up any time should the Lord ask for them. So Abram forsakes all to follow the Lord. Secondly, saving faith is a pedigree of faith that makes the Lord the priority. Who's the priority in life? The Lord's the priority in life. Um, 
Thirdly, saving faith embraces the promises given by the Lord. And fourthly, saving faith produces worship. Um, and if you're in possession of true saving faith, uh, you can't really do anything else, can you? But worship and praise God for what he has done for you. And that's why we gather here, isn't it? Uh, to praise him out of what he has done for us. Um, but later in chapter 3, a severe trial emerges, doesn't it? As we looked at last time, what happens? There's a famine. There's a famine, and the severity of this famine shakes Abram's faith to the core, doesn't it? As we saw last week. A lot of times, maybe we think of these biblical characters as unshakable. You know? uh, but here we see that actually they're quite shakable. And Abram's faith does indeed get it gets rocked. I mean, in, in reaction to the famine, Abram travels down to Egypt, doesn't he? And as they get close to Egypt, Abram, he's, he's wise. He's street wise. You know, he, he realizes the danger of going down there. And he knows his wife is very beautiful. He knows that there will be scoundrels down around there who will be wanting to get in with Pharaoh when, they, when their eyes see Sarah and her beauty, they're going to want to take her, they're going to want to take her to Pharaoh, uh, they're going to want to present her to Pharaoh, and if they find out that Sarah is married to Abram, they're going to kill him. And we can be sure that this was commonplace, because what happens when they get to Egypt? Yeah. What happens when they get to Egypt? Well, they take Sarah, as Abram suggested. But what has happened to Abram's faith? What has happened to his faith? I mean, God promised to make Abram great. How can God make Abram great if he's killed by these scoundrels in Egypt? <laughs> I mean, God has promised to make him into a great nation. How can he become a great nation if he's killed by these scoundrels in Egypt? He's promised to bless all of the families of the earth through Abram. How can he do that if he's killed in Egypt? And he's promised to curse those who curse him and bless those who bless him. And we could continue with the rest of the promises. How are any of these promises going to be filled if A, Abram starves in Canaan, or B, he's killed in Egypt? See, his faith is rock clear to the core. I mean, with his eyes on the promises of God, surely Abram could have reasoned that anyone who would take Sarah would be violating me. And then the promise of God would come through. He would curse anyone who cursed me. But anyone that shows us favor and blesses, they're going to be blessed. And he could go right down the list. But the fact is, Abram has taken his eyes off the promise. That's happened, hasn't it? His eyes are off the promises. He's taken his eyes off the Lord. And in the absence of the Lord and his, prov and his promises, what are we going to do? What is going to become of us? Well, then we're going we're to begin to lean on our own wisdom and understanding, and we're going to begin spinning our own devices, aren't we? Which is exactly what Abram does. He tells Sarah, hey, tell these guys you're my sister. And how does that work out? Well, they do come. They do come, and what had to have been an unimaginable scene, they come to take Sarah, and they take her to Pharaoh, and there's a marriage ceremony, and Pharaoh is now married to Sarah. It's hard to believe. Husbands, think about that for a moment. Um, 
things are bad. Uh, real bad. And we have to ask ourselves, how's God going to make good on the promises now? Sarah is dragged off and married to one of the most powerful men on the planet. How's this going to happen? Well, the Lord intervenes and it's quite easy for Him. He sends a plague upon Pharaoh and his household. He wakens Pharaoh as to the cause of this plague, that it's because of Sarai, and Pharaoh returns Sarai to Abram and throws them out of Egypt. In short, Abram has blown it. He hasn't blown it a little bit. He's blown it pretty big. Um, pretty big. I, I would think that uh, in, in modern times there might have been a little marriage counseling needed after this one. Uh, ladies, you, you, you can chime in if you want. Uh, um, that had to have been horrible. It's not a small issue. But the Lord has delivered him. And he has graciously delivered him. And we read the words, so Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife. Notice that. See the grace in that sentence? See the grace in those words, and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Abram pulls a stunt like this and is unable to leave with basically everything in fact, he leaves with more. He receives blessings. And I didn't bring this out last week, but he, bring, he, he receives blessings and favor by the hand of Pharaoh. And he leaves with all of them, which is really kind of amazing. God made good on his promise, didn't he? Verse 2, now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. In short, Abram was wealthy. There's something interesting about this word rich. A kebab, it's an interesting word. Do you know what it really means? It means heavy. Heavy. Um, Matthew Henry, writing so long ago, comments on this. His words, uh, um, he writes, quote, Those that will be rich do but load themselves with thick clay. There is a burden of care in getting them, fear in keeping them, Temptation in using them, guilt in abusing them, sorrow in losing them, and a burden of account at last to be given up concerning them. Meaning we have to answer to the Lord for, all, for our stewardship of all the Lord has given us. The more the Lord gives us, the greater in debt we are to the Lord. In other words, the more we have to account for Henry concludes, quote, great possessions do, to, do but make men heavy and unwieldy, end of quote. Jesus warns us of the same. Jesus warns us of the danger of riches. But, but the fact is God will raise up people from every group. God raises up his, his Abrams. Abram was a wealthy man and he ran. He's obviously a good businessman. He's done well for himself. And God will raise his Abrams. He'll raise his Job's. Job's another example of a wealthy man. And, uh, but men who can handle riches are very rare indeed. Matthew Henry also comments, quote, God in his providence sometimes makes good men rich men and teaches them how to abound as well as how to suffer want. The fact is God promised to bless Abram, didn't he? And he has blessed Abram, hasn't he? 
very richly. But the lower part of this blessing, listen to what I'm saying here. Don't miss this, this qualification, this qualifier. The lower part of his blessing, and it's much lower too. It's much lower. The lower part of his blessing are the material matters. I mean, there's so much lower the material matters, as we're going to see as we begin to study. Just in the fact that Abram's been able to leave Egypt with his wife. Think of the blessing of that. How much greater that is than all the silver and gold he's carrying around in the desert. The lower part of the blessing. The very lowest part of the blessing. The least desirable part of the blessing are the material things. And as we'll see, those material things don't come close to the blessings that God has in mind. Not even close. So, as uh, the lesson there, of course, for us is how much we are tempted to put our eyes on the lower things and seek the lower things and not able to see, see the higher things. Let me add one more comment from Matthew, so I, Matthew Henry, so I don't skew him or lead you to the wrong impression. He writes piety, and this is in the same, it's really on this, uh, in the same paragraph that I quoted earlier. He writes piety, and of course piety is walking before God with a holy life. He writes piety, and listen to this sentence. This is so beautifully put together. Piety is a friend to outward prosperity. So outward prosperity, if well managed, is an ornament to piety and furnishes an opportunity of doing so much more good. I, 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 I like this sentence so much that I could actually see it like printed inside a frame and hanging somewhere in our house. What, what does that mean? An, il an illustration, it's a well-known fact that many of the Puritans became quite wealthy. Matthew Henry was one of the Puritans. So it's a very well-known fact that many of them became quite wealthy, and it's because they managed their lives under God's Word. It's because they forsake everything for the Lord. They were willing to forsake everything for the Lord. The Lord was their number one priority. The promises were everything to them. And they worshipped God out of the life that they had uh, in Christ Jesus. And God blessed them. And as God blessed them, because they were so scrupulous to follow God's word, they managed God's blessings very well. And as they managed God's blessings very well, those blessings multiplied. And it became a great testimony to the watching world. Look at these characters. Look at these guys. They're serious about their God. And look how their God has blessed them. And it becomes a wonderful ornament. A wonderful ornament for all to see. It became a great witness to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8. Quote, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Do you hear that? As it holds promise for the present life, the here and now, and for the life to come. And for the life to come. So I include all of this so that you don't get the impression that to be rich is evil, to be poor is righteous. It's not that simple. I don't want to give you that impression. And if I left it earlier, I think someone might have said, okay, it's... it's it's, it's righteous to be poor, it's evil to be rich. No, not so, not so, not so fast. Um, we, can be, we can be dirt poor, yet twice as covetous as the rich guy up the street. Not, uh, hearts, hearts are more complicated than that. Um, what I'm simply, simply trying to say is that wealth is heavy. 
heavy. That silver and gold has to be carried around in the desert, doesn't it? All of these flocks have to be cared for, and all of these servants have to be cared for, and it's heavy. In verses 3 and 4, Abram journeys to a familiar place. It's a place where he had worshipped earlier. Verse 4, the place where he had made an altar at the first. You'll recall that back in chapter 12, verse 8, Abram had made an altar there and had worshipped there. Verse 4, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. There's public worship. Remember, there was no public worship in the last scene, in the last chapter, and I pointed your attention to that. That as Abram takes his eyes off the Lord, and takes his eyes off the Lord's promises, and then begins to make other things his first priority, what happens? Worship stops. Worship ceases. There was no worship. But here, uh, here worship is taking place in verse 4. And though the text doesn't tell us, I, I, I would find it hard to imagine that there wasn't repentance going on in this worship service. And that there wasn't thanksgiving going on, that the fact that Sarai is intact and with him. That had to have been a great worship service, huh? It had to have been a great worship service. Repentance for unbelief, thankfulness that God made good on his promise. And here we see a beautiful return to the faith, don't we? A beautiful return to the faith that Abraham had demonstrated in the first part of chapter 12. Beautiful return. Abram had blown it, but the Lord had graciously restored him. Isn't that beautiful? Abram had blown it, but the Lord had graciously restored him. And then in, verses, in verse 5 and following the narrative, it takes a, a turn. Here the, the spotlight becomes really on a controversy that takes place between Abram and Lot. Um, in verse 5, we're told that Lot is accompanying Abram and that also Lot had flocks and herds and tents. And in verse 6, here we have another trial. They say, well, wait a second. Didn't they just get through a trial? Yeah, they just got through a trial. And now they have another trial? Yes, they've got another trial. You see how this works? First is famine. Now we have another trial. Well, what's, what's going on here? Well, this is the life of faith. It journeys from one trial to another. The life in this... In this world, our pilgrimage is very difficult, isn't it? From one trial to the another. Abram has hardly shook all the dust off of dust of Egypt off his shoes, and here's another problem. Verse six the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Can you feel the heaviness we've been talking about here? They got all this stuff, you know, and the, the land just won't support it. So here we see the heaviness of all this stuff. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is the emergency down in Egypt, as traumatic as it was, wasn't enough to separate Lot and Abram. They stuck together through that. But they get, they get up near Canaan and their stuff actually separates, doesn't it? The emergency doesn't separate them, but riches do. I've seen this to be so common in families, especially families of means, you know. And my my life as a businessman, I I you know, I had uh, over the years I've had a lot of wealthy clients and different businesses that I've been involved in and I've known of families of means so often 
there's division. Um, some of it occurred years ago. And where brothers don't speak to each other, um, the rivals or brothers and sisters don't speak to each other, the father maybe started the business and the kids can't get along. They take their toys and go to either side of a town and their rivals. Uh, you know, a wedge has been driven in their relationship very deeply, um, driven there by the almighty dollar. In verse 7 of our text, we see that strife begins to break out between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. We have fighting, we have bickering, we have quarreling in the camp. And then look at verse 8 with me. Abram says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. What an act of faith. I'm not going to be able to get to develop this this morning as much as I would really like to. We're going to have to do that next week because there's a few more steps we've got to make. This is an incredible act of faith that's taking place right here. Abram offers a solution. He demonstrates great wisdom in doing so. He wants to put this strife to bed before it festers into a wedge. And if you look at verse 9, he says, It's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you take the right, then I will go to the left. Abram realizes we're going to have to separate here because the, the, the land simply won't, it, it won't support us. And Abram here is demonstrating true selflessness. We see that at least on the surface, don't we? There's more going on than that. But we see he's demonstrating true selflessness. I mean, uh, he doesn't insist on having first dibs here, does he? I mean, after all, he's the senior, isn't he? He's, he's kind of the, he's the one that God is speaking to. He's the one that God has called. He's, he's the one um, whom the Lord has been appearing to. Shouldn't he get first choice? I would say he has a right to that first choice for sure, but he's suspending that right, isn't he? He's suspending that right. Instead, he offers Lot first dibs. Verse 10, and Lot lifted... He, Lot lifted up his eyes. He says to Lot, listen, back to verse 9, the whole land's before you. You know, choose what you want. Verse 10, Lot lifts up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So Lot lifts up his eyes, doesn't he? He sees the, and spies the luscious Jordan Valley. You know, and he takes it for himself and he journeys as far as journeys east as far as Sodom. And in verse 13, notice this verse. Verse 13 really sticks out when you read this narrative. You read it over and over and over again. Verse 13 just it just sticks out. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. You see how that 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 the flow of the of the narrative, and then boom, you've got this verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And then we go to verse 14 where their narrative shifts focus again. And Abram is now separated from the company of Lot. And notice how verse 14 points this out. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Now notice there's another repetition like we had at the start. We already know that Lot had separated. We learned that in verse 11. But Moses, the author of Genesis, is telling us again that Lot had separated from him. The, point's being, the point of the separation is being emphasized, isn't it? And furthermore, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that the word of the Lord 
that's going to come to Abraham comes to Abraham after Lot has left. That has to be the point of this. Moses wants to make it really clear that God doesn't come to Abraham until Lot has journeyed away. And what could be the point of this? I think the point of this is Lot misses out on the blessing. He's missing out on the blessing. Look at verses 14 through 17. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Notice that, after Lot had separated from him. The Lord says, quote, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram responds by building an altar. He worships the Lord, and I'm sure this was one tremendous time of worship. One that Lot missed. He wasn't at this one. He wasn't present for this one. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, I want to begin by pointing your attention to this phrase, lifting of the eyes. Lifting of the eyes. In verse 10, we're told that Lot lifted up his eyes. In verse 14, after Lot had departed, the Lord comes to Abraham and tells Abraham to lift up your eyes. Do you see that phrase? Lot lifts up his eyes. Then the Lord comes along and tells Abraham, lift up your eyes. Now, what we have here, there's both a wonderful message here as well as a profound warning. Now, I don't want to take them in that order because I don't want to end on a profound warning. <laughs> I'd rather end on a wonderful message. I think you would rather I do that as well, wouldn't you? Let's show of hands. Who wants to end on the profound warning? <laughs> who, wants to, who wants to end on the wonderful message? I'll say I. <laughs> yes. In verse 10, we have really a, a profound warning here. We're told that Lot lifts up his eyes. What does he see? We're told he saw the Jordan Valley. It's well, wander, it's well watered. We're even told that it was like the garden of the Lord. What could that be? What's the garden of the Lord? What do you suppose the garden of the Lord is? Probably a reflection of the garden of Eden, wouldn't it be? That's what I think it is. That's a strong statement. And we need to remember that these folks have just been through a famine. It means there's no vegetation. It means there's no rain. It means there's, nothing's been growing. Not able to feed your animals. Everything's withering. Everything's dying. And Lot looks over and he sees the Jordan Valley well watered. What would that look like to his eyes? Oh my goodness. It looked like the garden of the Lord. But it also has another qualifier that we dare not miss. We're told that it looked like the land of what? The land of Egypt. That's where they just come from. That's not good. Egypt is often used emblematic in Scripture for the world. Often for the world. And secondly, we'll notice that it's with worldly eyes that Lot looks. The eyes that Lot is using. They're worldly eyes. I mean... Obviously, these are eyes of self-interest. They're eyes of selfish ambition. They're eyes that can only see the here and the now. And they're eyes that can only see what can be 
felt and touched, aren't they? Well, you know, listen, you, you see all the land before you. Go ahead and choose what you want. You, you choose to go this way, I'll go that way. You choose to go that way, I'll go this way. And Lot lifts up his eye. And he sees this valley well watered. Looks like the garden of the Lord. Looks like Eden. Oh. Looks like Egypt too. And he chooses it. Thirdly, notice the direction that these worldly eyes lead Lot. First, he's, Lot heads for the Jordan. Secondly, if you look at verse 12, Lot heads for the cities of the valley. And thirdly, Lot eventually follows these worldly eyes as far as where? Sodom. Sodom. Now verse 13 doesn't seem so awkward. What does verse 13 say? The men of Sodom were wicked. Lot moves his tent to the land of Sodom. It's where these worldly eyes lead him. And in doing so, he's already lost out on a blessing. It had to have been a wonderful worship service in this. He's missing church. Lot's actually making the first step and losing everything. Some of you know the story. You know how this ends up working out for Lot. Doesn't it, it's just it's just terrible. Whereas we study, we're going to see it. it's just it's terrible. So there's a lot of trouble ahead for Lot. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, and be careful with what kind of eyes you look. Eyes of self-interest, selfish ambition, eyes that can only see the here and now. Faithless eyes. They lead you to Sodom. They lead you to Sodom. And what grief this must be to Abram. Because at this point, it seems to me. At this point, Lot is really the closest thing to a son that Abram has. Wouldn't you agree with that? He's a nephew. But he's probably like a son. Lot goes with him everywhere. And now he's encamped at Sodom. Some of us know that grief, don't we? Some of us know the grief of having children encamped in Sodom. Awful grief, isn't it? Be careful with what kind of eyes you look. There's a profound warning, but there's also a wonderful message here concerning the Father's heart towards those who have blown it. Notice how he, I've already pointed out how He has lovingly restored Abram. And in restoring Abram, He simply doesn't put Abram back to the place on the road where Abram left off. When he restores Abram, he restores Abram to a place that's much further down the road of faith. The Father restores him to a more faithful and wiser place. And, and, and this is the Lord's attitude towards our weakness. I mean, this is really one of the great sources of strength when we've blown it. It really is. We can come to this passage like this and we can see, you know, Abram has really blown it. And the Lord just restores him very graciously restores him. And he, rest, he, he doesn't just, you know, I think our logic would be, okay, we're going to be restored, but we're never going to be restored back to the place where we once were. I mean, you know, we're going to have to pay for this, and so we're going to have to start all the way back at the end of the line and work our way back up again. No, it's not what happens. As we can see, that's clearly not what's happening. It, it, the, the Lord 
doesn't simply put Abram back to the level he left. The Lord doesn't make Abram start all over again. The Lord actually, the Lord actually advances him. It's quite amazing. It's quite amazing. How do I arrive at this conclusion? Well, it's because the Lord expands his promise to Abram. See, Lot lifts his eyes. And what does Lot see? He sees the well-watered, he sees the world. That's basically what he sees. But the Lord, having just watched the whole thing, watching Lot lift his eyes and cherish the world and the things of the world, the Lord comes to Abram and says, Hey, Abram, why don't you lift your eyes? Why don't you lift your eyes? We don't have time to go into verses 18, 14 18 properly. That's my intent to do next week, but let me give you three things as an appetizer here for next week. Lord willing. First, Abram had blown it. I've pointed that out. So bad, so bad. He lost his wife, didn't he, for a temporary period of time. He didn't know he was going to get her back, did he? The Lord intervened. The Lord delivered. The Lord set Abram back on his proper course, back to the land of Canaan. Same thing, the Father also gathers up when we have strayed. How many times have we strayed? How many times have you strayed from your course? And either someone prayed for you, or you woke up and said, Lord, I need, man, I'm, I'm just off the mark here. And the Lord puts you back on your course. This story gives us courage to do that an incentive to do that when we're missing the mark. Because we see that this story shows us what the Father is like. This is what He is like. This is how He is. This is how He deals with His children when, they, when they've gone to Egypt and they've blown it really bad. Secondly, the Lord meets Abram in his grief. I mean, as I said, Abram has got to be grief-stricken. I mean, He's got, a, he's got a nephew that's encamped in Sodom. He might not be um, participating in all that goes on in Sodom, but he's encamped in Sodom. Fact of the matter. And for all he knows, he could be influenced any time. Uh, you, can't, you can't encamp in Sodom and not be influenced by Sodom. That's not possible. So Abram is undoubtedly grieved by this. But the Lord comes and meets Abram in his weakness and grief. And, and listen... If you've got a loved one encamped in Sodom, the Lord will also come and meet you in your grief too. Just call on Him to do so. This encourages us to take our grief to Him and encourages us to plead for the salvation of those we love. And we're going to see that. That's going to come up. Where basically Abram does exactly that for his nephew Lot and for the people of Sodom. We're going to see that. That's a taste of what's coming up. Thirdly, the Lord speaks to Abram and strengthens him in his love for him. The Lord strengthens him in his love for him. Now, um, Lord willing, that, that's going to take us into next week, but let me say this. The Lord does not put Abram back on the road at the same place where he left. The Lord has strengthened Abram and he's strengthening Abram in his love for him. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Lord reiterates the promise to Abraham, showing Abram his, design, his divine love. Showing Abram his loving determination to bless him. 
That's why I can say that Abram is not being returned to the same place in the road where he wandered off. Abram's being returned down the road a ways. Why? Because when Abram is restored, he realizes he's being restored all out of grace. And what does that teach him? It teaches him that the Father is really determined to bless him. It teaches him that the Father is really determined to fulfill all of the promises that He has made to him. The Father doesn't owe him anything. Save judgment. But in doing what the Lord does, He shows Abram how determined he really is to save him. How really lovingly determined he is to save him to himself and to bless him in every capacity that he has promised to bless him. That's worth more than silver and gold, isn't it? You see how I can say that's so, that's the lower part of it all? It doesn't even, you don't even think about silver and gold when you're lost in these things. You could care less about silver and gold. That takes us to next week. But his divine and loving determination to save us, to save Abram to himself. I mean, listen, uh, what do we get from this? Well, the Lord does the same thing to you and I. Do you realize how determined the Lord is to save us? Not willing to spare anything, even his son. For the son not sparing. The Lord's determination to save us, He gives Jesus for us all. What must it have been like for the Father to watch the suffering of His most precious Son on the cross? At what cost? Think about your child being there. He is so determined, so lovingly determined to save us, isn't He? And that strengthens us in His love. In case you're wondering what kind of title I put to this message, that's the title. Strengthened in His love. I think it helps you when I give you a title so that you can say, wow, what do I put this all on? What do I hang this all Hang it on this. Strengthened in His love. I think that summarizes everything that we've said. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this great text that we haven't even begun to even mine the fruit from or the riches or the, the precious metals and precious stones of faith that, and grace that are in these passages, Father. We haven't even begun to mine Father, we thank you for what you have given us so far. We thank you for what you have shown us. And what you have shown us is so precious. Father, help us to digest all of this, Father. Help us to store this in our hearts in a place, Father, where rust and moth will not destroy or the evil one will not snatch away. But, Father, cause these things to take root in our hearts that they would produce fruit 30, 60, 90 times. Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing our concluding song this morning.